my name is John Glazer. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. I want to welcome you all to the Hayek Auditorium today. I also want to thank our uh, conference staff, especially Kiana Graham, for all their hard work in preparing for this event and making sure it's possible. Uh, one quick note, uh, one of our discussions today is uh, just briefly tardy. Uh, he's uh, had some metro trouble, which is not uncommon here in DC. Uh, he should be here uh, very soon, uh, a couple minutes. Um, I can go on very pridefully and for longer than anyone would really want to hear uh, about how unique and important Cato's foreign policy department is in terms of the um, sometimes heterodox perspective it brings to the uh, policy debate here in Washington, D.C., which frequently can be too narrow or too committed to the status quo to embrace new ideas. I'm confident that today's conference will deliver, not only in this respect, but uh, also in terms of the impressive and distinguished cast of experts and discussants we'll hear from today. Uh, the program will proceed as follows. My colleague Eric Gomez here, a policy analyst, will uh, moderate the first panel discussion, which will focus on North Korea's nuclear and conventional developments, the strategic impact that it has, what it all means for US policy towards the peninsula. Following this, Governor Bill Richardson will sit down for a discussion uh, with uh, Ted Galen Carpenter, a senior fellow here at Cato. They'll explore some of the history of US-North US Korean relations, as well as assess the current approach. And then finally, I will moderate a second panel that will explore uh, kind of outside the box ideas uh, of the kind that typically lie outside the parameters of debate here in DC for solving the problem of North Korea. Uh, for those of you, you in the audience uh, and watching the live stream online, you can join in the discussion by tweeting with the hashtag CatoFP. Um, we're trying to run through this straight without a break. Uh, I know that can be, uh, might be long for you to sit, so if you do need to use the restroom, they're out here down the hall to the left of the elevators. Um, and with that, I will turn it over to Eric. All right, hello everyone. My name is Eric Gomez. I'm a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute, and I'm going to just briefly introduce our panelists, and then we're gonna dive right into the discussion. Uh, so immediately to my left is Joshua Pollack. He is the editor of the Nonproliferation Review and a senior research associate at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Um, next to him is Suzanne DiMaggio, a director and senior fellow at New America, and uh, currently directing a US DPRK dialogue uh, with recent trips to North Korea and a facilitation of talks between the Trump administration and Pyongyang that happened earlier this year. And finally, who's the empty chair, uh, who will be with us shortly, is Joe Serencioni. He is the president of the Plowshares Fund and a prolif prolific writer on issues of nuclear weapons and proliferation. So with that, I'll turn it over to Josh. Thank you, Eric. Uh, I thought an empty chair represented Barack Obama. <laughs> uh, we, we're charged with talking about uh, North Korea's capabilities in the nuclear missile domain and American policy. Uh, I do think that uh, there's a tendency to treat capabilities as, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, an, an area of um, an area for nerds. Let's just say it. Uh, <laughs> a, a very detailed, fussy area that that doesn't really affect the, the parameters for policy, doesn't affect the security environment, 
um, at the margin, uh, just do they do they have certain things or not, and, and the details of how they got them don't matter. Uh, I think that's a mistake. Uh, and, and I'd like to, and here he is. Uh, <laughs> uh, just handing about me yet? Uh, <laughs> a few things, a few things, uh, but, but we'll leave you in suspense. We made sure to assign the blame to right. where it was due. <laughs> right, exactly. So um, it does matter how Pyongyang got to where it is today and where it is going, and, and I think it, it will help us think more constructively about our policy options if, if we have the, the best possible understanding of how North Korea goes about uh, developing uh, missiles and nuclear weapons. Since I only have a few minutes, I'm, I'm not going to, to bore you with every last little historical footnote. Uh, but I would like to say that, that uh, our starting point uh, for understanding these issues is probably the wrong one, typically. It, it is usually the mental image we all have of satellite photographs of the Korean Peninsula at night. And North Korea, with the exception of Pyongyang and a couple other specs, is largely dark. Uh, well, the camera doesn't lie. Uh, maybe Photoshop does, but th these photos are authentic. Uh, but the, the, the message that they carry, what we infer from them, I think is quite misleading. Uh, this, this may be uh, an economic weakling by regional standards, but it is not technologically backwards where it counts. The reason for the darkness, uh, I submit, uh, is, is a, a matter of policy. Uh, the North Koreans have systematically neglected the civilian economy for decades. Instead, they have put their resources into military industry and other areas that they think will advance the core interests of the regime. So what we are seeing is, is not uh, an indication of uh, primitiveness uh, or incapacity. Uh, it is an indication of national priorities, of state priorities, uh, and, and we should probably understand it that way. For in fact, there is uh, a significant uh, science and technology complex in North Korea. There's significant military industry. You can examine uh, uh, military production sites uh, in satellite photos. And in recent years, they've expanded quite a bit. There's a lot of investment going on. Don't ask me to put a dollar figure uh, to it, because I don't know how to put things in North Korea into dollars, for, for one thing. Uh, and, and we just don't know what, what, it, what it costs the, the regime in resource terms. But they are clearly, just from, uh, just from a standpoint of relative priorities, uh, along with um, making Pyongyang uh, a little more shiny and gleaming, uh, this is the, the big area of investment right now, is building out uh, these production facilities. At the same time, there, there has also been in recent years uh, investment in uh, the research institutions, uh, including the leading universities in Pyongyang, uh, Kim Il-sung University, Kim Chak University of Technology, 
and the University of Natural, of Natural Science, uh, which is uh, more or less co-located with the State Academy of Natural Sciences, uh, sorry, State Academy of Sciences on the edge of Pyongyang. Uh, so we've seen uh, new buildings. Uh, the leaders have done tours there. The uh, leaders of these institutions have become increasingly more prominent in propaganda. Uh, scientists have received uh, more attention, more honors in the media, uh, and, and more resources. Uh, new housing complexes built for them and their families. Uh, in, in a significant way, they have displaced uh, senior military men as, as the uh, most celebrated segment of society uh, after the Kim family itself. This is not entirely new. Uh, under the late Kim Jong-il, uh, science and technology was called one of the three pillars of, of uh, constructing a powerful state, along with ideology and the gun barrel, uh, which I think we all recognize are pretty significant things in North Korea. And under Kim Jong-un, science has been called uh, the engine steering the building of a powerful socialist country. So they care about research and development, uh, they care about production. Uh, there has been some confusion on this point, not only because of the darkness at night in the satellite pictures that, that lead many people to assume that they are incapable, but also the evident Soviet design heritage uh, that, that we see, in, particularly in their liquid-fueled missile program. Uh, the North Korean strategy, and this has been explicit from the mouths of leaders since the mid-1980s, is that they imitate and adapt. They rely on foreign design information, they don't reinvent the wheel, and they go from there. This is a fairly typical catch-up strategy for developing countries with, with serious technological ambitions. Uh, the Chinese do it on a much grander scale and are much further along the track. What we're seeing now are the, the North Koreans in the, in the missile area in particular uh, creating their own versions of 1960s Soviet technology. So this is by no means uh, cutting edge technology. It's not as hard to do because someone else has already invented it. They've managed to steal or buy design information and figure out how to replicate it, sometimes with help from partners like the Iranians. And, but they have enough on the ball, they have enough capability now to make uh, missiles and warheads that were designed decades ago uh, in other countries. Great feats of innovation are no longer required to do what they're doing. Uh, so they can be a second or third rate power and have these capabilities largely on the strength of their own industry and their own research institutions. Uh, some people posit that there is a great mystery about where they're getting their missiles. There's no mystery. We have a pretty good idea of where their missile factories are. Uh, a lot of it, you, you, can, you can just look it up online. You can find, find where the sites are at the Nuclear Threat Initiative website, for example. Uh, defectors have been talking about these sites. Leaders have been visiting these sites for decades. No mystery. So, why does that matter from a policy perspective? Uh, I would submit that the sanctions approach that we rely on so heavily 
uh, in the international community, in the United States in particular, can inflict pain. It is a tool of coercion. But it cannot prevent the emergence of new North Korean capabilities. I'm not telling you that they don't import anything of significance. I'm certain they do. Uh, but we can see how little it really is compared to certain other countries through a number of different lenses. If you look out there for, for case studies of proliferators uh, beating sanctions to import high-tech goods, they're virtually all from Iran. There's very little out there from North Korea. Are they really that much more sophisticated at hiding these activities than the Iranians? Possibly. I think they've just made themselves less dependent for the most part. Uh, when the South Koreans recovered the first stage of North Korea's space launcher from the ocean uh, in 2012 and again in 2016, they pulled the pieces apart and made some determinations about what was imported and what was indigenous. Largely, it was indigenous. Uh, we tend to see a focus in our media on the imported parts, which were mainly commercial off-the-shelf electronics from around the world. Uh, but, you know, frankly, that, I think, reflects our interest in sanctions. We're always looking for how can we refocus sanctions and, and sharpen this tool and make this tool more effective. That's all to the good. But uh, that leads us to be a bit like the, the uh, proverbial drunk uh, un under the streetlight looking for his keys, which he dropped half a block away in the alley. Why is he searching there? Well, there's light there. Uh, unfortunately, the, the picture is a little bit dark for our preferred policy tools. Uh, we don't have the ability to deny the North Koreans the technological progress that they have made, are making, and will make. All we can do is inflict pain on them, and I think that's not enough to get them to change course. Thank you. Okay. All right, Suzanne. Um, good morning, everyone. I want to thank uh, Cato Institute for organizing this event, and thank you to John somewhere here for inviting me. <laughs> Happy to be here. Uh, I'm going to focus mainly on US policy, um, but I would like to begin by some, uh, some points about capability, just to set the context. So I think it's very clear for those of us that have been watching North Korea, especially over these past couple of years, that they've shown an unflinching determination to advance both their nuclear and missile program in the face of increasing international and unilateral sanctions. In 2016, uh, Pyongyang rep, uh, racked up an unprecedented number of UN Security Council resolution violations that included two nuclear tests and over 20 missile launches. Uh, this growing capability more recently has been demonstrated by intercontinental ballistic missile tests just this past July, and what many experts have concluded was a hydrogen bomb test in September. Again, all of this has occurred in the face of increasing pressure and increasing sanctions. Uh, U.S. intelligence agencies recently reduced the time uh, they think it'll take North Korea to develop a missile that could carry a nuclear weapon small enough to fit into the missile's warhead and capable of surviving the stresses of reentry and deliver it to the continental U.S. to one year. Some believe it's even less, and some believe they could already do it. Uh, this replaced an earlier official estimate of roughly four years, give or take 
12 months. So the rationale behind this accelerated pace is crystal clear. The North Korean leadership sees their nuclear program as the only source of security against regime change by US hands. Based on what I've heard in track two discussions with North Korean officials, uh, particularly over this year, uh, this position has hardened. They have concluded that the United States will not attack a country that has this capability, plus the means to deliver it. And they point to Muammar Gaddafi of Libya and Saddam Hussein of Iraq as cautionary tales. Um, the North Korean leadership's quest to demonstrate they possess this capability is their highest priority, and they're well on their way to achieving it. I think they also see having this capacity as a way to strengthen their negotiating position as they contemplate a return to talks. Uh, let me talk a little bit about North Korea's point of view. I recently returned from Moscow, where I participated in a panel discussion with a senior North Korean diplomat. In her remarks, she explained why Pyongyang believes it needs nuclear weapons. Again, it's a strategic choice on their part. Uh, because they view having them as the only reliable way to deter U.S. aggression. She described their intentions in the short term. Uh, the DPRK will continue to develop its nuclear weapons and ca missile capabilities until it reaches a, quote, balance of power with the United States. And three, she commented on the prospects for getting talks underway. And here she called for three things to happen for the US to demonstrate that they are abandoning a hostile policy. One, halting the uh, inflammatory rhetoric, hostile statements made by President Trump. Two, stopping military exercises. And three, lifting the sanctions. Uh, this was a public event, uh, so it wasn't off the record, but I can say it tracks very closely with what I've heard in off-the-record discussions with uh, her and her colleagues over the past two years. Uh, in these talks, I have found the North Koreans to be absolutely defiant in their pursuit to advance their nuclear capabilities, but, and this is very important, also open to discussing ways to avoid a disastrous outcome. So what are the range of options that we should be pursuing? Uh, um, all of my options are going to focus in the realm of diplomacy. Priority number one, as I see it, is to de-escalate the tensions. Uh, the leaders of both the US and North Korea are currently engaged in a uh, dangerous escalating war of words. In fact, I'd say we, we are stuck in that mode. Uh, heightened U.S. military maneuvers over and around the Korean Peninsula, the movement of U.S. strategic assets on, into the region on one hand, and then provocative tests by the North Koreans like flying a missile over Japan, and then the threat to conduct an atmospheric test, nuclear test, over the Pacific on the other hand, of course only adds potent fuel to this mutually reinforcing cycle of escalation. The longer this conflict, uh, this course uh, persists, as long as it intensifies, I think the greater the chances of spiraling into a military conflict, either by design or by accident. Uh, I think we also have to think about the possibility of backing Kim Jong-un into a corner. I think it's very important of leaving an adversary, especially one who thinks he's in regime survival mode, 
uh, to provide him an off-ramp to back down and have the diplomatic channels available through which to do that. So I think the priority now must be to cool things down, scale back on the rhetoric, and stop the personalization of attacks, uh, because that is particularly counterproductive. Uh, I think um, President Trump has an opportunity to do this on his Asia trip. We'll see if he can uh, control himself. Uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, priority number two, as I see it, is for the U.S. to communicate policy coherence. I think at the moment it would be very difficult for any of us to explain what current U.S. policy is towards North Korea. Yes, we hear maximum pressure and engagement, but what does it really mean? And is it actually being implemented? Uh, senior members of the administration and President Trump himself are making contradictory statements on a fairly consistent basis. This only adds to the risk of misinterpretation and miscalculation, and it should be addressed as a matter of priority. Uh, I think this is a moment that demands clarity and consistency because nuclear weapons are involved. And while pressure tactics and sanctions uh, and military options must remain on the table, the U.S. should speak in one voice and declare diplomatic engagement as our first choice. Uh, this should also include a clear indication that we are proceeding in close coordination <clears throat> with our allies and partners. Again, the president has an opportunity in, during his, this five-nation trip to make this point. Uh, priority number three would be focus on getting productive talks underway. Uh, one of the ways to proceed would be to first engage in bilateral talks about talks without preconditions, to explore what might be possible, I think this would best be done through uh, a quiet, low-key channel authorized at a very high level, at the highest level, I should say. And the objectives would be to clarify current positions, current policies, discuss potential points for compromise, what are the non-negotiables, what are the red lines, and then set the groundwork to move ahead to negotiations within a broader multilateral framework. I'm suggesting a similar process that was utilized by American and Iranian diplomats that began in Je July 2012. Prior to the start of official uh, negotiations, uh, U.S. and Iranian diplomats engaged in a series of secret meetings. It eventually led to an interim agreement, and I believe these discussions made the resulting landmark Iran deal uh, possible. I don't think they it, this deal would have happened without these initial talks between the U.S. and Iran. I fully recognize that the two cases are very different, but I would contend that given the high degree of mistrust that exists between Pyongyang and Washington, uh, we need a similar approach with North Korea. Uh, one major le uh, lesson learned from the Iran talks is, yes, diplomacy is extremely hard. Diplomacy with an adversary is the hardest thing to engage in, but it's not impossible. Uh, the goal of denuclearization should remain the U.S.'s long-term objective, but I think we need to set it aside for now because it's currently outside of the realm of possibility. Instead, we should be placing an immediate focus on de-escalating, as I said, as a way to gain traction towards negotiations focused on achievable goals. What is achievable at this time? I think a priority should be placed on reaching a freeze agreement with North Korea where they uh, put a moratorium on their nuclear and missile testing. 
I think such an agreement would create space for further talks, build a bit of confidence. Uh, and I think the North Koreans should recognize that for the US, probably cannot engage in talks while they continue to test. Uh, in exchange, the US and South Korea could agree to adjust their joint military exercises, adjust the scale and scope, and this could perhaps be combined with some sanctions relief. If these talks prove to be effective and productive, it could open the way for further talks. Uh, for example, I think discussions on uh, securing assurances from the North Koreans that they will not transfer nuclear weapons, fissile material, dual-use technology, as well as chemical and biological weapons should be pursued. pursued. Also talks on nuclear doctrine, uh, Pyongyang cyber program. These are the things that should be prioritized. Uh, in the medium term, I think um, the North Koreans have consistently contended, both in their private and public talks, uh, that they can't relinquish their nuclear program until the US drops its hostile policies. This is the standard line that we hear. This indicates some conditionality to some extent, and I think it should be pursued. How do they define these hostilities? How can they be addressed? This could be a very long-term and arduous discussion. Uh, maybe would include a peace agreement, uh, security guarantees, but again, I think it's well worth placing on the agenda. Um, so given the hard realities, we can't proceed on the basis of mutual trust. That much is clear. As such, what I've put on the table is a phased approach with confidence-building measures built in along the way. I do think we should take a page from the experience with Iran, where there was a pressure and sanctions um, effort. Uh, in the case of North Korea, we have uh, two of the toughest uh, sanctions, set of sanctions passed by the UN Security Council recently. On top of that, unilateral US sanctions. Uh, with Iran, after the sanctions were built up, we did a pivot to engagement. And we also pointed to an off-ramp which I think is very important. Uh, we offered something that would allow for a win-win narrative for Iran. In the case of Tehran, it was allowing uranium enrichment on their soil. Uh, we need to be thinking in a similar way with the North Koreans. So we have a difficult road ahead on top of all the usual obstacles that make trying to convince the North Koreans to return to the negotiating table uh, enormously difficult. I would say that Trump has added three new challenges and no surprise, they're all self-inflicted. He has undercut our US, uh, the US's chief diplomat, Tillerson, and his staff, and the pursuit of diplomacy uh, in general by tweeting that talking to the North Koreans is a waste of time, uh, seemingly signaling a preference for military options. He has decertified the Iran nuclear deal severely undermining American credibility in any future negotiations with the North Koreans, and, by the way, also degrading our long-term commitment to the end of, uh, to end the spread of nuclear weapons. And also, his erratic behavior and his mounting problems here at home leave the North Koreans asking whether he will be U.S. president much longer. Mm. Uh, given the recent indictments, I actually wrote this before that, but uh, I'm pretty sure they're asking, why should they begin negotiations when Trump could face impeachment or be forced to resign sometime soon? Uh, so just to conclude, I think 
We all hear the louder talks in this town about military options to solve the North Korea problem. It's growing even louder and louder. Uh, but the massive casualties, the large-scale destruction, the extensive global economic disruption such an approach would bring are unacceptable, especially when we haven't even tried diplomacy yet. The U.S. needs to develop and commit to a diplomatic strategy to manage the advancing threat posed by Pyongyang, and we need to fully test if diplomacy can work. We must pursue and exhaust every diplomatic option available to avert the possibility of a war, of war with a nuclear-armed regime that believes it's in survival mode. Thank you. Mm. All right, Joe, uh, you're going to be our last speaker, and, and you have about 13 minutes. Uh, 30 minutes? Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much, and thank you, John, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I will be brief and blunt. Uh, I have two highly qualified experts that you've just heard from. Jonathan knows more about the technology, uh, the nuclear and missile programs in North Korea than I do. And Suzanne certainly knows more about the diplomacy, having engaged firsthand uh, with both the North Koreans and US officials trying to resolve these issues over the years. Both of them present very balanced, I would say somewhat dry presentations. But here's why you should pay excruciating attention to everything they said. Because if you don't pay attention to what they just said, we're going to go to war with North Korea. We are, as Nick Kristof wrote in the editorial pages of the New York Times yesterday, slouching towards war with North Korea. Admiral Stradvarius, who's now the dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy up at Tufts University, former Supreme Commander of Allied NATO Forces, said there's a 50-50 chance that we're going to go to war with North Korea. Richard Haas, head of the Council on Foreign Relations, 50-50 chance. Joel Witt, head of 38 North, says 40% chance. John Brennan, former CIA, says 25% chance. So let me get this straight. If Stradvarius is right, there's a 50-50 chance we're going to have a perfectly nice Veterans Day weekend. 50% chance that it's going to be all fine. We'll go bike, we go walk, we go to museums. But there's a 50% chance that we're going to go to war with North Korea. And Stradvarius says 10% chance of nuclear war. I agree with him on the 50-50 chance. I think the 10% is way too low. If this war goes, I don't see where the fire break is at conventional. I don't know why it doesn't go nuclear right away. And as Suzanne alluded to, the casualty estimates are horrific. We think we know war. We've been at war for 17 years now since 9-11. But these are counterinsurgency wars. These are low-scale wars. We're talking about casualties in a new Korean war, as uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis said, that are beyond most people's living memory. We're talking World War II levels of fighting. It's estimated that 300,000 South Koreans could die in the first hours of a conventional war. Scott Sagan has just written a piece in Foreign Affairs that estimates it could be a million South Koreans could die in the first few weeks of such a war, and that's if it stays conventional. Why are they saying that? Where do those casualty figures come from? It comes from the artillery and rockets that North Korea has dug in 
over the mountains of Seoul. Seoul, a city of 25 million people that used to be 35 miles from the DMZ, but has sprawled up like all metropolitan areas do these days, sprawled right up to the DMZ. It's estimated that the North Koreans can drop an artillery shell on every square meter of Seoul. And then they can do it again. And then they can do it again. Can we stop that? Yes, we can. We have some very sophisticated weapons in, deployed in the South that can immediately detect a North Korean artillery shot from where it's fired, vector in on it, and direct a shell to take out that artillery piece if the artillery piece is still there. The North Koreans have dug these in. They're on rails, they're on trucks. They move them out, they fire, they move them back. Can you do a preemptive strike? Can you strike and eliminate all these weapons first? No. No, you can't. You could take a lot out, but you're not gonna get all of them, and that's the problem. Most analysts game this out. Even if it stays conventional, the U.S. wins, and North Korea and South Korea are destroyed. For some people, that is acceptable. And when Christoph says we're slouching towards war, when I say that you, you can feel the winds of war in this town now, what they mean is comments like Lindsey Graham a couple of weeks ago, saying how he talked to Donald Trump about this, and they both agree that if there's going to be a war, let it happen over there. Sure, millions would die, but if they would die over there, that's Graham's words. And from a certain perspective, from a cold-hearted, Stalinist, Maoist, World War II general perspective, that's war. Millions of people are going to die, but we're going to win. McMaster head of the National Security Council, said the other day, our president has been really clear about this. He is not going to permit this rogue regime, Kim Jong-un, to threaten the United States with a nuclear weapon, to threaten the United States with a nuclear weapon. And so he's willing to do anything necessary to prevent that from happening. What does that mean? What are they talking about? Is that just tough rhetoric? Tammy Duckworth doesn't think so. She knows war. She lost two legs fighting for the United States in the Middle East. She says, I see a change in posture. I'm extremely worried that we're moving beyond let's prevent war to it's acceptable to do a first strike. And that's what you're worried about. There are some people, I think they're nuts, who are saying we should strike first. And by that they mean two things. One is the large, massive first strike that many military generals will say, that's, you, you want to strike first? We've got to go big. But some of them are saying, no, 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 no. It's a selective strike. Some cruise missiles, a few bombers. Those B-1s that we practice flying from Guam to South Korea in bomb runs that we do over and over again. We've done over a dozen since August, since May. The North Korean Sea. And they say, you're planning to attack us. And we say, no, 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 no. This is just a retaliatory. This is just a defensive practice. Uh-huh. But that is how we would attack first. That is how we would do a decapitation strike, or perhaps just a few missiles, a few bombs launched at a test site. So what you're worried about is the mistaken belief 
by our leaders that if North Korea does something provocative and they will do something provocative, I'd be real surprised if they don't test while Trump is in Europe something, even short-range scuds, that they do something provocative and Trump, while he's there, does what some of his, his assistants have said he did over the Iran deal if he throws a fit. Those are the way the Gets his staff. Gets cranky. A fit, out of control, and orders an immediate retaliation. We have plans for this, off the book. He doesn't have to think it up. He doesn't have to be Churchill. He doesn't have to design it. He goes, I want option 43B Delta Bravo. And they go launch a calibrated strike with the belief, and this is a current belief out there, the rational dictator theory, that you can do a limited strike against Kim Jong-un, warn him that if he retaliates, we will reply massively, and he will then stay his hand. He will take the hit. They should talk to Suzanne. <laughs> is he going to take a hit? As I said, he's in regime survival mode. And how is he going to interpret a, 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 a limited strike to take out a test facility that recently launched? That this is probably it. This is probably it. As Bill Perry told us at a conference Plowshares Fund sponsored uh, last week, which you can watch, by the way, on stream if you go to plowshares.org. You can watch Bill Perry and Suzanne talk about North Korea. Just last week, he says Kim Jong-un will strike if we strike first or if he believes we're going to strike first. And this is where you get into that preemptive war. We talk about it, how we're going to do it. Well, that, that works for both sides. If they think we're about to strike, they're going to strike first. They're not going to sit there and let B-1 bombers fly from Guam if they have a missile that can hit Guam. And guess what they do? So that's what you're worried about. This is compounded by what has happened in this town over 20, 30 years. We've allowed the myth of missile defense to sustain itself over and over again. This myth that we have some kind of technology that can shoot nuclear missiles out of the air. We do not. But the president thinks we do. He said it just yesterday. I don't understand, he said on Air Force One. Why the, Jap why the Japanese don't shoot those North Korean missiles out of the air? Because they can't, Mr. President. Japan does not have any capability that can hit those missiles. They're flying way too high. They're flying in the wrong direction. The de kinds of defenses they have, Patriots, Aegis, forget it. They don't have a chance against these type of intermediate range, long range missiles. Well, how about us? How about the great United States? Can we do this? No. We can't either. We have the same weapons, and they can't touch those missiles. How about those expensive $40 billion missiles that we spent in, and deployed in, in Alaska and California? Can they do it? No, they cannot, Mr. President. Even under pristine test conditions, they only work 50% of the time. And that's if the enemy cooperates. And that's if Kim Jong-un fires a missile at us that looks exactly like our test tar targets that he doesn't try to hide it in a cloud of decoys or chaff or jammers, or he doesn't take out the radar first and blind our interceptors. Kim Jong-un has to cooperate with us in order for us to have a 50-50 chance of knocking down one of the missiles that he now has that he can almost certainly fit with a nuclear warhead that can almost certainly hit the West Coast and Midwest of the United States. But if Trump thinks that we do have a magic technology, 
If he thinks, as he told Hannity, that one of our interceptors has a 97% chance of hitting that missile, and if that one fails, you fire two, and then you can get it. If he thinks that, we're screwed. Because then he thinks he really does have a shield that we can strike with our sword, and then we can protect ourselves. Sorry about Seoul and Tokyo, but we're okay. And this is why, for this kind of danger, which I believe is the most serious national security threat we face today, and it's going to be with us for months, that this complex of factors is now worsened by these two other factors that we have to now start including in all our national security analysis. And if you don't mind, I'm going to speak just very bluntly about this, because I think we have to stop hiding and avoiding this issue. One of the factors we have to talk about is not just the, the military equation, but in that equation, you've got to put in the C factor, the crazy factor. How unstable is the President of the United States? How crazy is he? Can he be contained? Are we enabling him by not talking about this? When you hear that he's when Senator Corker talks about the White House as an adult daycare center, when he talks about Mattis and Tillerson as all that's standing between us and chaos, when he says the President of the United States has put us on a path towards World War III, I take him seriously. And it's not because of Donald Trump's policies that he says that. It's because it's of, his, of Senator Corker's perception of his mental condition. So we have to start factoring this in. We cannot assume that the President of the United States is going to make a rational decision, but our entire national security structure is built around the idea of a sober, careful, calculating, rational male president. Sorry. <laughs> we don't have that right now. So you've got to start factoring that in. What does that mean? And the other factor you have to bring into stuff that's not usually included in national security discussions is the R factor. Do I have two more minutes? The R factor, the Russian investigation. Suzanne mentioned it. As this Russian investigation intensifies, and it is just getting started, how does that affect the calculations of the President of the United States or his mental condition? He would not be the first president to be tempted by a military, using a military adventure to distract from domestic difficulties. Richard Nixon brought the US nuclear forces up to a posture of DEFCON 3 in 1973, allegedly over a Middle East crisis, which there actually was. But DEFCON 3? And Richard Nixon was considered up until his last few weeks sober, calculating, sane, rational. So you have to bring these factors in, into mind. And you put these together, and I think this is toxic. This is dangerous. 50-50 might be optimistic. 50-50 might be optimistic. There is a way out of this. And I know when you hear Suzanne talk about negotiations, you go, oh, they've broken every deal they've ever concluded in the last 25 years. You can't trust the North Koreans. We don't want to pay for the same horse twice. I know there's, a, there's 20 criticisms of negotiations, and a lot of them are real. It's just that the criticisms and the problems with the negotiations pale in comparison to going to war or drifting towards war, which is our current policy. We are doing nothing. The sanctions, they're effective, they're good. They're going to stop North Korea? No. Diplomacy, incoherent. Incoherent. We are going through the motions here on North Korea. 
we have to do something dramatically different. Some members of Congress are trying. Just last week, members of Congress introduced legislation on two issues. One, to stop the president from having the ability to launch a nuclear weapon first. Saying, no, you can't do this, Mr. President. If we're under attack, that's one thing. But no, you can't launch a nuclear weapon first. And number two, to require that the Congress authorize any military action against Korea. The Congress do this. It was introduced by John Conyers, one of, the, one of two Korean War veterans in the Congress, and uh, I think 60 other co-sponsors. So members are trying to find their way, but they have to be more gutsy about this. They have to do more. Can't, I know they're sincere about this, but they really have to step it up, and they have to talk honestly about it. There is a, one of the problems we have right now is not just we have problems with the administration, we have problems with the Republican Party, we have problems with the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is gutless. I just read their National Security Caucus in the, in, the, in the House. I don't know if you saw this statement that came out last week about North Korea. It's typical Democratic palbum. We have to be tough, we have to increase sanctions, we have to consult with our allies. It's like the current policy, but more rational. They never mention the word negotiations. Never mention the word negotiations. Democrats are afraid to talk about negotiations. They've been whipped into submission. Afraid to talk about the only thing that has ever worked to stop the North Korean program. We froze the plutonium program for eight years. We froze the missile program for eight years. It's the only thing that's ever worked. So we have to get a lot more real about this, do a lot less posturing, and include all the factors in our discussion if we're going to have any prayer of escaping the most catastrophic war most of us have ever seen. Thank you. All right. And on that note, um, we're going to turn it over to your questions. Uh, we have about 11 minutes. Uh, the microphones will be out. I'm going to take two people at a time. Uh, when I call on you, please introduce uh, yourself, your affiliation if you have one, and please phrase your questions as a question. So all right, take some questions. Uh, you, sir? Chorak from The Nation magazine. Uh, two questions. Uh, there was a story in the Post from the Pentagon yesterday saying the only way to secure North Korea's nukes is to have a ground invasion. I used to live in Korea. I was raised there. Uh, I've been covering it since the 70s. It's the first time I've ever heard that term yeah. used. And it scared the hell out of me. Do you think this is being said to warn Trump, this is what it's going to take. And, and second, what do you think, I guess this is for really for Suzanne, what do you really think ending our hostile policy could mean when they ask that that's the only way they will negotiate? Thank you. I, I think there were two questions in there, so we'll just start with that. Okay. I, I can take a crack at the first one. The, the, the story you saw in the Post uh, was, was coverage of a, of a letter to a couple members of Congress. They had requested uh, an answer from the Pentagon, and they got one. Uh, it, it, it's not, it shouldn't come as any surprise that the only way to secure North Korea's nuclear arsenal is, is by being present on the ground. That, that should just be obvious. I mean, we, we've seen what North Korean nuclear designs look like. They're not the size of a house. They're, you know, objects that could exist in any warehouse, any tunnel. How else are you going to find it? I, I think it, it's, it just, it's just obvious. But now it's been said. 
Uh, I agree with that. It, let's keep in mind, this wasn't the Pentagon offering this info just because they wanted to warn the president. They were asked, requested this information, and that's how it came about. On what are hostile policies, I think um, we're getting a clearer picture. Uh, in our private discussions, uh, they clearly mean the military exercises and U.S. military presence in general. Uh, second, uh, also the sanctions. And third, uh, we've heard two different uh, items. One I mentioned today, and that was President Trump's rhetoric, his threats, his uh, you know, threats to destroy North Korea. But also in other conversations, I've heard um, U.S. interference in uh, domestic affairs of North Korea, particularly human rights. Uh, so when you think about this group of issues, uh, these are workable issues. I mean, these, these aren't, uh, you know, completely off the table. I could see us coming to agreement on all three or even four. Of the, the, I think the hardest one at this point would be to get Trump to tone down. Uh, but again, I don't think they're outrageously uh, re unrealistic. Um, it would just take a real good negotiating team to get through this. And that's a point I didn't make, is everything I described, the process of diplomacy, you know, if, if North Korea were to call tomorrow and say, we're ready, we're ready to engage, Are we? what, what would this administration, who would the administration put forward? Yes, we have a phenomenal diplomat in Ambassador Joseph Yoon. Uh, and I'm sure there are other foreign service officers that would come up. But when you, again, when you look at the Iran deal, the team that they had put together to, to execute those negotiations and then to implement it from Bill Burns to Kerry, Wendy, uh, Sherman. Wendy Sherman, and then uh, Ernie Moniz, a scientist diplomat. Nothing the, like that. The technical team, the nuclear team, the, the team at Treasury on dealing with the sanctions. Um, I just don't see the capacity there at the moment, and that really worries me. Real quick, then I'll... They didn't actually answer the question. There were two questions. One was on news, the other was on casualties. Read the letter. They never give a casualty figure. They say, oh, well, it depends on this, it depends on that. They never give the figure. I bet there was an earlier version of that letter that gave the figure. I would bet the story behind that letter is really interesting about how that got scrubbed. But the first paragraph is the money paragraph. You'd need a ground invasion. What Jonathan says that's obvious, and I agree with him. That's, well, yeah. And the, we don't know where the nuclear weapons are, as the letter explains. We don't know where they are. But even if we did know where they are, how do you secure them? And that's because of, we've been living in a world of counterinsurgency and special ops, where people do go drop in and kill Osama bin Laden and then get away. And it's a quick in and out. I talk to people all the time and they think, well, if there's a conflict between Asia and Pakistan, won't we just go in and get Pakistan's nukes? No. <laughs> right, he laughs, Jonathan laughs. He knows, no, you can't just do that. But Americans think we can. They think we can just go in. I mean, what are they, what do they got, 20? Special ops? No. A ground invasion would be required. Korean War. Korean War levels of combat. Um, yes, right there. Yeah. 
Uh, hello, my name is Andre Satchlin from American University, and I have a question about what life after diplomacy would look like, um, particularly for you, Ms. DiMaggio. Um, won't a suffering communitarian and nationalistic society like North Korea's need another bogeyman after the United States, um, even if Kim Jong-un does go home with a handful of concessions that make him look victorious, isn't it only a matter of time before either South Korea or Japan or someone else needs to resurface as a bogeyman um, which serves to uh, uh, serves to support the us versus them uh, mentality and justify the oppression that people tolerate? And in that case, aren't we back at square one? Oh, uh, oh sorry, I was just going to take one more. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I'll be quick, too. Sir? Yes, uh, Dave Fitzgerald, retired uh, State Department. I noticed in all three presentations there was no discussion of, of the Republic of Korea or South Korea. Uh, don't they have any way of engaging with North Koreans? I think they do. Um, the, the entire thing, uh, the entire problem on the Korean Peninsula is a continuation of a civil war. We've only stopped it. We've never ended it. And the, it isn't between the U.S. and North Korea. It's between the two Koreas. And both Koreans would like to get the U.S. in between them uh, in order to avoid the choices that Koreans have to make about what kind of leadership they really want. And they've never had that. And uh, even with uh, times of tension, there have been South Korean and North Korean communications. You think of the uh, time in the early 70s, three years after a North Korean attack on the Blue House, uh, there was a phone calls between you know, the Red Cross talks started in 1971 or 72. So Koreans can talk to each other to avoid this, this uh, we, uh, we march just, towards war. We have to get them to. So, so on your question uh, here, um, I see two parallel tracks. There would be a U.S.-North uh, Korea track and then an inter-Korean track. The problem is, is the North Koreans have made it very clear they don't want to talk to the South Koreans. They only want to talk to the Americans. They say the six-party framework is dead, and they don't want to revive it. So I think by necessity on one track, it has to be U.S. and North Korea. Um, going forward and then move into multilateral. But what's key is that the U.S. Uh, administration, if we take this on, is that we are co in close coordination, in coordination with the North Koreans as well as the Japanese uh, and even the Chinese and Russians on this because uh, we're going to need them too. So uh, that would be my answer to that. And your question, I think it's very difficult to answer what Kim Jong-un's endgame is. I mean, some actually believe, some in our intelligence community, I think Mr. Pompeo himself believes that his real goal is to uh, uh, use nuclear weapons to re reunify the peninsula under his terms. Uh, we don't know that for sure. There's no direct evidence that I've seen. Uh, can we assume that that is probability? Maybe, but it shouldn't stop us from um, uh, tackling a crisis that we have on our hands now. Uh, and we'll only find out what his end game is. I would, I would predict that uh, in early 2018, very likely he and his regime will declare that they have completed their nuclear program at some point in that period. What that, period? Uh, early 2018. Uh -huh. Uh, so we should expect a few more tests coming up. 
And I think what I'm most interested in having conversation with them now about is what are the, what are going to be what will their priorities be post declaration? What do they see? What they tell us is that they then will be able to switch to focus on economic development. We'll see. It's something we should test. I'd like to add a, a couple points. Uh, I don't think they will ever uh, say flat out that they're satisfied with their level of strategic capabilities as long as the hostile policy persists. They, they will always be looking for the next increment. And they'll define that in different terms. The, this pursuit of a balance of powers is the latest turn of the screw. Uh, and if they don't get what they want, ultimately, they'll, they'll have to invent some other goal for themselves. Uh, testing nuclear weapons and missiles right now are just about their only way of pressuring the United States to get what they want. So if they don't get what they want, they'll have to keep at it uh, unless they, they think a little more creatively. On the South Korean side, not only is North Korea not interested in talking to the South Koreans at this moment, um, but uh, South Korea poses a, a different sort of challenge. Uh, Joe talked with real passion about the, the risks of preemptive war and instability. But it's not just a two-actor uh, problem anymore. It's a three-actor problem. The South Koreans have a, a, a very potent missile program. And they also talk about developing the capabilities to preempt the North Koreans. So this isn't just a case of extended deterrence where they're sitting there like a bump on a log or appealing for American help. They want to have their own means of, of national self-defense. And, and this is how they talk about it now. So. All right, and with that, we need to wrap up this panel and, and give some time to change over. The next uh, discussion with uh, former Governor Bill Richardson will begin here in around five minutes. Uh, so a quick break, but thank you. Um, please join me in thanking our panelists. <laughs>